little vignette and, and the one we saw last week with Trent has just been my dream for this church for so many years. Just people being people, building relationships and shining the light of Jesus in the way they know how, the best way I know how. Um, I love the just simplicity too of Jacqueline saying, I made a deal with God. And if she wasn't there, I was moving on. And you know what God does, right? Sometimes he says, uh-huh. <laughs> Such a cool story. Well, this morning, um, we're going to continue in John chapter 4. And I want to start by just talking about barriers to faith. Everybody has a barrier to faith. Now, back in um, April, my family, we, we visited St. Augustine, Florida. It was our first time down there as a family. And as part of our trip, uh, there's sightseeing involved with St. Augustine. So we went to the Castillo de St. Marcos. It's this incredible historic gem in our nation's oldest city. Now, this fortress that you see here on the screen was built in 1672 by the Spaniards. And over the time that this fortress um, has been there, it has changed hands multiple times. So it started with the Spaniards, it goes to the British, it goes to the United States of America. As far as I understand, it was actually involved in the American Civil War. And as you would imagine, when a fort occupies a territory that has been turned over that many times, it is a contested territory. So you walk into this place and you immediately recognize the barriers. You see the thick, opposing, high walls. You notice the, the, just the layout of the fort. If you were to look at it from the top level, you would see that it has a very specific layout in order to protect itself. You notice here that there is a moat with a drawbridge. In fact, it was said that they filled that moat with salt water and then proceeded to throw sharks and alligators and that kind of stuff in the moat. So imagine as a soldier falling into the moat. Wouldn't be a great experience. As I think about this fortress, I believe that people create barriers too to protect themselves and around themselves. You've probably observed this. You've probably had a relationship or a friendship and you knew this person was closed off. And there can be many reasons we build barriers. Some of us build them because we've been hurt at a fundamental level by another human being. And so engaging in another relationship of trust is hard. Others of us have like a, a perception of ourselves. I'm this kind of person and and I don't want that perception of me to change. So what do we do? We build walls to protect the perception. Others just want to be right. I want to know that I'm right about how I look at the world. And so we create walls. This morning in John chapter 4, we're going to read about a woman who has some significant barriers. And we're going to see how Jesus overcomes these barriers for this woman. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. 
And he had, not, uh, he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go. Call your husband and bring him. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So let's walk through this story now. I want to suggest that there are two significant barriers to faith right away with this woman. First thing we observe are some clues from John that this woman held prejudices. And this is a prejudice that goes pretty far back. We get the cues because Jesus engages in her conversation and, and she immediately says, oh, you a Jew are willing to talk to me. And I think that's the implication. Like you're willing to lower yourself right now and have a conversation with me, a Samaritan woman. Isn't it my lucky day? And John says Jews would have no relations with 
Samaritans. It's odd in the first place that Jesus is even at this well. You see, in this day, the animosity is so deep between these two people groups that the Jewish rabbis would actually circumvent Samaria. They would travel east if they were going north, around Samaria, up the mountains, and north they would go just so they didn't have to soil their feet with Samaritan soil. They had an ancient hatred, hundreds of years old. The Samaritans, after all, had rejected Jerusalem as the place of worship. They, divide, they denied the Davidic lineage, and they rejected a lot of the Old Testament because the Old Testament said that the Messiah would come from David. But it goes deeper than that. When Alexander the Great and the Grecians are coming into this area and they're coming in to occupy the Jewish people, guess who allowed them to use their land as a base of operations? The Samaritans. And then the Jews, well, they counterattack, and they devastate Samaria, and they destroy the temple on Mount Gerizim. This is an ancient hatred, and it's a wonder that this woman's even willing to talk to Jesus, and she's surprised that he's even willing to talk to her. But I think there's an even bigger barrier, and it's her reputation. You see, John just starts giving us clues right away that not everything's right about this dynamic. He notes first that it's the sixth hour of the day. Now, that might mean nothing to you. In fact, the first time I read that, it meant nothing to me. But it turns out that the sixth hour of the day is high noon. That's when the sun's up at its brightest, beating down. And when you're in an arid climate that's really hot and you have a daily chore like getting water, you don't want to go get water when the sun is at its hottest. You want to go get water in the morning and in the evening. And if everyone's going to get water around the same time, because we're kind of smart like that, we, we make these observations, it turns out that the well becomes a gathering place for community. It's where the news is exchanged, the local gossip, it's where the relationships are built. And here you have this woman, oddly enough, not going to the well when other people will be there. Jesus divulges why. He tells us that she's had five husbands, and her current man is not her husband. I mean, it sounds like an episode of Maury Povich when you think about it. And you imagine that the reason that she starts making this decision is because she's gone to the well before. And at the well, she gets the, the little murmurs and the stares, and sometimes the barbs that are directly aimed at her. I don't know what she was like, but I'm sure she probably has developed a hard exterior over the years. She could probably exchange wits with the best of them. But there comes a point in any person's life when they hear enough times, you're no good through people's body language, through their stares, through their words, that you just start saying, you know what? It's easier to go to the well at noon than it is to go to the well at that time. I'm going to avoid it altogether. Now, I just want to say, I might be going out on a limb here, but I don't imagine that as a little girl, 
She dreamed about her life, and she envisioned it turning out that way. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you this morning is that there is a story here. And it turns out that in dynamics like this, more often than not, there is a story of heartache and heartbreak. There's often a series of unfortunate events that leads a person to walk down a road that they'd never wished to walk before. You know, when the Bible talks about sin and the insidious nature of sin and says that when we sin, we become a slave to sin, it's not saying that to make you feel like this horrible, wretched, terrible person. It's saying it because that's what sin does. You start off making decisions, and then eventually the natural consequences of the decisions start setting in, and eventually you find yourself entrapped because after all, you live 20 years of life, and you can't go backwards and start it over again. We all have felt that in our life before. And it's enslaving because sometimes the choices of another person can enslave us. So here you have people, either way, however it happened to them, that start feeling intrinsically at the value level and dignity level that they're not worthy of God's love ever, no matter what they do. I was just in um, an incredible event that was hosted here at the church. There was a woman named Jasmine Grace, and she had escaped just the horrors of human trafficking. It was hosted here by Treasured Lives uh, Initiative that's co-founded by our own Jen Hevener and Marcia Donnelly. And the purpose of the event was they want to expose citizens of the community to the horrors of this terrible institution that happens all around us all the time. Jasmine Her story is like many stories of enslavement. You start off with poor choices. You start finding yourself in a dynamic where someone's abusing those poor choices. So now they're grooming you. And then she gets into this relationship with this evil, wicked man who abuses her, who makes her sell herself as a commodity. She said in her own words, I never envisioned myself as a little girl growing up to be a prostitute. You know part of her story of how she escaped human trafficking? She found a church, starts having Jesus conversations with women in a Bible study. You know, someone like Jasmine walks into that environment and believes she's worthless, she doesn't have any value, God could never love her, and then she starts hearing from the word of God, guess what? You don't qualify yourself spiritually. I've been memorizing Colossians chapter 1, and Paul says in uh, verse 12 that we're to give thanks to the Father because he has qualified us. It was his work. And in verse 13, he goes on to say, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. You know, when people come to a crossroad where they need to make a faith decision, they have different messages of grace that they need to hear. I, I think about Nicodemus's story from last week. 
Franklin Graham commenting on Nicodemus, he said, every church in America would love to have Nicodemus walk through its doors. There would just be no problems with Nicodemus coming here. I mean, he looks right. He's a moral guy. He's well-to-do. Everybody's going to love Nicodemus. But Jesus's message for Nicodemus was, you think you're qualified, but all of your qualifications are not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough if you show up to church each week and fill a chair. It's not enough if you give money to God. It's not enough if you show up to a hack walk for hope and you do good things and you think you're a good person. It's not enough. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need the Holy Spirit of God to enter into your life and radically change you from the inside out. This woman believes she's totally disqualified. She's never going to be worthy of God's love. And Jesus' message for her is going to be, it's never too late. You see, there's one gospel, but sometimes we need to hear different dimensions of grace. People need to receive different messages about grace. And that's why conversations are so powerful. Now think about the barriers that this woman presents how do you overcome a fortress that has all these barriers? Well, as I've thought about it, it seems to me that there are two ways to do it. Way number one, by force. So you get your cannonballs, you get your soldiers, you line up against the fortress, you throw everything you have, you kind of get this like tell in your mind of how many soldiers can become alligator food before it's too much. And you take that place over, and now you occupy it, and now you need to protect it. The second way is the way of peace. You build a relationship. The people inside the fortress begin to trust you. They lower the drawbridge. They invite you in, and you start doing life and friendship and commerce together. You know, when you look at Jesus' approach to barriers, he always takes the second way. He builds a friendship. Now, let's take a look at how he does that with this woman. I, I notice that first, he connects spiritual truth to a felt need. If you look at verses 7 through 10, again, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus says, give me a drink. What a mundane thing to ask, right? And she says, well, you're going to talk to me, a woman from Samaria? And Jesus then says, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And before I unpack the brilliance of that statement, I want to make just two quick observations of his approach here. Observation number one, when you're engaging someone in a Jesus conversation, you have no idea what barriers exist within a person. How do I come to understand the barriers of a, that a person presents? There's only really one way. I can care about them, and I can listen to them. The second thing is that I believe that our biggest problem with Jesus' conversations as we have no space in our lives for impromptu moments. 
Many Jesus conversations manifest themselves outside of my ability to foreordain my schedule and make them happen. They happen in the impromptu moments of life. You have Jesus at a well, he's dog tired, but he's available right now. If he were to retell the story of the Good Samaritan today in our context, instead of talking about a priest and a Levite being too afraid of getting ceremonial unclean, he would talk about a bunch of Christians at a church who are walking walking down the road, see a bloody and beaten man on the side of the road, and they're distracted because they're looking at their Apple watch. Or they see the person, but then they look at the Apple watch and they say, oh my, I'm late for my next appointment, and they move. Our calendar, our time, our margins, our availability, we need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry out of our lives if we want to have Jesus conversations. Well, he's got the time, and he talks about living water. Now, what's interesting about this and what piques her interest is everyone knows that in Shechem, you don't have access to living water. Living water is a source of water that just continually flows. It's fresh. So think about an underground spring or a river or a stream or something along those lines. He offers this, and she says, where in the world is this living water you're talking about? Are you greater than Jacob? Jacob lived here all this time. He walked every square inch of this place. He knew there wasn't any living water. He had to dig this really deep well, this well that kind of provides us tepid, warm water. And Jesus says to her, I do, I do. But now he changes the conversation from physical realities to spiritual realities. Look at verses 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So this dramatic image that he's creating, this image of salvation... He's telling her through an everyday, ordinary experience that she understood that you're in search of something deeper and God is willing to provide it for you. He's telling her that the Holy Spirit can come into her life and drastically transform things, so much so that it's like taking a well that you normally take a bucket and you send it down 100 feet and drag it up to the surface so that you can get your thirst quenched, that well becomes this spring that gushes forth, that's always available to you, that's always present. She says to him, well, how do I get this water? What do I do about this? Now, here's what I find really intriguing about Jesus' next steps. Normally, like if I'm in a Jesus conversation and someone says, well, what do I do about that? I'm like, boom, let's close the deal. Let's go through the gospel. Let's say the prayer right now in this moment. He doesn't do that. No, he brings up a sore spot. Look at um, verses 16 to 18. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. 
And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Hold on a second here. Is this another bad interaction at the well? Is Jesus judging her and condemning her and making her feel worthless and sinful and wicked? Is that what this is all about? Is he re-traumatizing her so that now she's not even going to want to come to the well at noon? Jesus in the scriptures, we're told, is the wonderful counselor. He never wants to re-traumatize a person. He never wants to make a person feel worthless. He's all about bringing healing into a person's life. And here, Jesus knows that there's a far more significant barrier in this woman's life than her prejudices or her reputation. She keeps coming back to a spiritual truth that we learn about through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 2.3, the Lord speaking to the nation of Israel said, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. Do you see how messed up we are spiritually? We have this living water available to us at all times in a relationship with the living God of the universe, and yet we don't perceive it. We don't see it. And so what do we do? We create these little broken cisterns. In the case of this woman, it's her relationships. It's her need to feel special. She keeps showing up to the broken cistern of another husband, another guy in her life, and she's expecting a different result. And he's saying, why do you keep doing this to yourself? Why do you keep visiting this cistern? You take a big gulp of it, you walk away, you feel more thirsty than when you first arrived, and it brings more social ostracism into your life. Why? But she's no different than any one of us. We have broken cisterns. You see, when someone is far from God, they are trying to replace the satisfaction and fulfillment with joy and significance substitutes. Here are some broken cisterns that I observe in our culture. One, the need for approval. Why do you believe that if more people just recognized you or liked your posts on social media or noticed that thing that you did, that, that you would be better off? Why? What about the need for power? Why do you think that, that winning and succeeding and being viewed as a person who is successful is going to make you feel more fulfilled in life? What is that doing for you right now? How is that working out for you? Well, what about the need for security or comfort? I've been hurt. I'm never going to let that happen to me again. I am going to insulate my life, whether it's through my 401k or through my isolation from relationships or whatever you do. Why do you think that's going to make you better? It turns out 
that when a person is far from God, they falsely believe something or someone can deliver what only God can deliver. And what's incredible about God is he's not content with that reality. He has placed a thirst in you, a thirst for something more, a thirst for significance. And the thirst exists because it's intended to draw you to the source of living water. We substitute it with false sources. They never satisfied. And God puts you in thirsty mode so you'll keep searching and looking and hopefully find him. Now, Jesus, he delivers he tells her what she's always longed for. Isn't it interesting in this conversation that the conversation moves from a ta uh, 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 talking about water to husbands to now this woman is making a theological point. How does that all work together? In verse 19, here it is. This is her theological point. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, there's been two views on what she intended when she says that. One view, which you often hear from the pulpit, is that this is like a defense mechanism. Jesus just went somewhere where she didn't want to go. So she kind of turns the conversation to something a little safer, like a politics conversation or a theological conversation. Oh, you know what? You're saying that about my life, but at least I know the right place to worship, buddy. I don't think that's what's happening here. See, as I look at this interaction, I think Jesus is getting down to the heart of the matter with her. I believe that this woman is struck to her core, and now she's trying to process theologically, what do I do with this. And in this culture, when you felt unclean before God, when you felt sinful, your next step was to go to the place where God dwelt and offer a sacrifice. Jesus, where do I go? You seem to be spiritually in tune. Is it Mount Gerizim? Or do I need to go all the way down to Jerusalem to make this right before God? Listen to me on this. Every failure in life stems from a failure of worship. Every failure in worship can be traced back to wrong thoughts about God. This woman's God was a parochial God, meaning he lives in a region, he dwells in a temple, if I'm like all the way in the, the land of China, I've got to travel all the way back to the land of Samaria in order to make myself right with God. She has a wrong view of God. So now Jesus has to correct her understanding of God, and he tells her three points about God. First, he gently corrects her wrong views. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So he's saying, in other words, the Jews are right about Jerusalem, they're right about Scripture. They can point you in the right direction. Second, he explains that a relationship with God is no longer tethered to a physical place. Verse 21, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem 
you will worship the Father. Thirdly, he explains the nature of true worship. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Do you want to know what your biggest problem in life is? You make God, the living God of the universe, into a lowercase g God in some way. That is the definition of an idolatry. Idolatry is our attempt to take the God who inhabits eternity, who is all-powerful, who cannot be contained, and we try to stuff him to the size of a little figurine. And why are we doing that? We're doing it because we want to be able to manage God. Now, we don't like bow down before idols today, but I will say this, we are trying to attempt the same thing. We believe in this culture oftentimes in what is called a God pal. You know, God's just there for me. And he just shows up for me when I need him. And if I don't need him, then he's fine. He can remain over there. But, but it's all about me and my interests. We, we, we turn him into this like cosmic slot machine instead of the God of the universe. And instead of feeding him with quarters, we feed him with Bible verses. Of course, God just has to deliver when I ask. He's at my beck and call. That is trying to stuff God into a little figurine. It's wrong. God is not a God who wants to be managed. (laughs) He is the God of the universe. He is not manageable. But what this woman finds out in this interaction with Jesus is while that is true, he is approachable. You know what he says about God? He says God is seeking people. That means that he's not waiting for us to come to him. He's on the lookout. He comes to us in the person of Jesus. He's proactive in this dynamic And he has two expectations. Expectation number one, that you worship him in truth. What does it mean to worship God in truth? Truth involves right thinking about God, who he is. I can't make him into some God of my own imagination. I must worship him as he is. And my understanding is the only way that I can know truth about God is by coming to a right understanding of him through the scriptures. After all, if the scriptures are full of errors, if the scriptures are not trustworthy, if the scriptures are not infallible, then how do I get to a place where I can start discerning what is true? How do I find out anything about God? He must reveal himself to me. Jesus said this of his disciples in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in the truth, for your word is true. The other piece of it is spirit. Spirit is your inner person. All that I am on the inside responding to all that he is. In other words, when you put the two together, God wants your mind and he wants your inner person. He wants all of you. 
And if you come to him in that way, it will change your life. And of course, we see that take place in this woman's life. She comes back at Jesus in verse 25, and she says, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, here's what I think the implication is. Are you that guy? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus responds, I who speak to you am he. And then we get the rest of the story. Now, Last week, the rest of the story for Nicodemus was unclear. We can read chapter 7 of John, and then we can go to the part of the burial, and we can kind of conjecture and think that Nicodemus came to faith. But this is made explicit for this woman. Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Now imagine that. She has one conversation with Jesus at a well. She doesn't go off to Bible college. She doesn't read a book on how to share Jesus with people. She doesn't need to sit through an evangelism class. She just goes off and starts talking to people, and they listen. And she doesn't know, like, doctrine. She doesn't know the Bible very well. What does she possess? A story. She has her story. And think about her story. It was a story that before the well, she was so ashamed of, she didn't even go to the well when you normally go to the well. And now she's met Jesus, and he's repurposed the story to where she wants to tell everyone the story. Isn't that incredible? Now, every person has a story that's worth telling. In fact... You are who you are, where you are, by God's design. Think about how much of your life has been assigned to you. In other words, you had no decision involved. It didn't matter what you thought about it. Like you weren't born a thousand years ago, for example, in Tibet or, or Australia. And you happen to live in this place right now at this time. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your build. You didn't choose how you look. You didn't choose all kinds of things about your life. Hmm. I wonder why God makes this different. Maybe, maybe God made you different because he needed Pastor Rob to tell other people about Jesus for you. <laughs> you think that could be it? You think that God needs... Um, Andy Stanley and your favorite TV radio evangelist? Do you think he needs just only the mature Christians in the church? Does he need them to go tell people about Jesus for you? You know, no one can step into your context, assume your personality, and share Jesus with your friends the way you can share him. In other words, only you can share Jesus exactly where you share him in the way you share him or how you share him. Let's pray. God, I know you love people. Give me an opportunity today to help someone see your love for them 
and hear of how they can enjoy your work in Jesus Christ. Give me the boldness to talk with them about your son, Jesus. Amen.